You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. I'm delighted today to be joined by Scott Rifskis. He is a professor of practice at the Brown School of Public Health. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Steve. You know, really important, you know, conversation. I have to say at the onset, it, you know, it's hard to believe we're three years into this pandemic and we lost a million people in this country due to COVID-19. And we always have to have those individuals in our thoughts. Let me say a few words about your background, which is quite distinguished and quite unusual. Prior to coming to Brown, you were a a senior professor in the College of Medicine, University of Florida, chair of the pediatrics and chief physician at the Sands Children's Hospital in Gainesville. Prior to that, you were served in 16 years at the School of Medicine at Yale, where you served in many leadership positions and led many large biomedical research projects. You came to a lot of our attention in your role as the Surgeon General and and Secretary of Health in Florida, appointed by uh, Governor DeSantis. Uh, You served in that role from June 1 of 2019 until uh, September 20th of 2021. So a stint of about 27 months in a pretty difficult period of the pandemic. So you you were right at the front face of the response during the worst of this and also in a period when the politics surrounding the pandemic were evolving. And of course, Governor DeSantis was putting himself at the front edge of a certain perspective on politicizing different forms of the interventions, which put you into certain certain confrontations and had some consequences for you. Let's talk about that period, your tenure as the Surgeon General and Secretary of Health in Florida. Early on in the pandemic in April of 2020, you were doing a press conference. You were making the case vaccines were not likely to appear for about a year. In the meantime, masking and social distancing was going to be very important tools for trying to reduce risks. That didn't sit well in the in the governor's office, and your role as a public personality in that period diminished significantly. But that did not diminish, as I understand it, your role in doing many, many things behind the scenes and in other ways to continue to try to protect the citizens of Florida with the tools that you had, which are pretty extensive tools in Florida. That's a long-winded introduction. I apologize, Scott, but tell us, just tell us the story of how you went about attempting to continue to work effectively against some pretty adverse circumstances in Florida in that 27-month period. Yeah, you know, thanks, Steve. You know, so first of all, just in terms of setting the stage, you know, Florida is the third most populous state in the country, and it's also one of the most medically vulnerable to COVID-19. 20% of the individuals in Florida are 65 years of age and older, second per capita only to Maine. So despite the fact, you know, we recognized that we had a really vulnerable population really early on. We are really aggressive in putting measures uh, in place to 
control uh, COVID-19. And in fact, when you looked about a year and a half into the pandemic, in terms of cases per capita, we were 29th in terms of individuals who sadly lost their lives to COVID-19. We were about uh, about 25th. But, you know, as that pandemic wore on, you know, the response did become, you know, more uh, complicated as you were dealing with issues related to uh, misinformation, uh, vaccine hesitancy. But we really stuck to our core principles and putting a number of different approaches in place to try to help uh, control the pandemic in the state. So what are you most proud of in terms of what you were able to achieve and accomplish in this period when you were really getting pressured from multiple directions? You had, on the one hand, pressures coming from the governor's office in opposition to many of the the tools, the interventions that the public health community were advocating. He was not alone in that. There was a very strong reaction in many parts of America against mandates, against school closings, and mandates with masks and vaccine mandates and the like. So you were having to go operate with that reality, but you also had very vocal communities of professionals, professional pediatricians, academy folks. You had CDC itself out publicly at times issuing statements that were contrary to what was coming from the governor's office. And you're sitting kind of in the middle there trying to figure out, okay, how can I continue to do some good work in this context? What are, what are you most proud of what you were able to achieve behind the scenes? Yeah, so I, I will like to, you know, emphasize this is that, you know, in Florida, we have 67 county departments that have the largest fully integrated department of health system you know, within the country. And throughout the pandemic, we were able to do the things to keep people uh, safe. So in terms of specific things, you know, early on, it became really clear that this virus was especially harsh on older individuals. So early on, you know, even before we had a first case of COVID-19 in the state, we focused on protecting seniors in the state. We ended up having visitor restrictions within nursing homes. We set up strike teams, nursing homes, assisted living facilities, which were really impactful. You know, then even moving, you know, that was, that was in, you know, February, March of 2020, you know, moving to when schools reopened, you know, there was a lot of debate, should schools reopen or not in the summer and fall of 2020? And Florida was one of the states where schools opened and people were worried about that. And we provided tremendous amount of support with the Department of Health to uh, local districts of education. We were able to show that we could get the kids back to school and we were able to do it in a safe way with relatively low numbers of outbreaks, less than 10% of the 6,000 schools in Florida ended up having COVID outbreaks that be attributed directly to school. Then I think another really important measure was when vaccines became available in December of 2020, we pivoted differently from what the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices recommended. Rather, we focused on individuals 65 years of age and older, which was lower than what had been recommended. And by March of 2021, you know, we actually were one of the leading states in the country in terms of having older individuals who are vaccinated against COVID-19. So collectively, these measures and others really, I think, really played pivotal roles. 
What were the strengths that Florida came into this crisis with that set it apart in terms of its public health infrastructure and its other capacities in terms of the medical institutions? The state has, as you said, is the third most populous. It also has quite an array of biomedical training institutions, research facilities, skilled talent. Say a bit about what the state possesses in terms of special assets. You know, the way that emergency management and the way that health is structured, where it's integrated, I think is really important. So again, 67 counties, you know, very diverse counties in terms of geography and population makeup. And so each county has their own county department of health, but they would also work with us centrally in Tallahassee. So this allowed us to push out common messaging, common strategies as well, and similar structure with the Department of Emergency Management. So in having an integrated system really helped in terms of response. You know, this applies to all aspects of response in terms of data collection, you know, strategies we're going to put in place, sharing resources across the state as well. Now, we've heard from many different sources, folks in the like Ann Zink in, the, in Alaska, where she also heads the AASHTO, the American Society. We've heard this from talking to chief public health and medical officers in, in various other states, that outreach, being on the ground, showing up in communities, getting out and listening to people became very important. Deborah Burks did a similar thing when it became difficult for her to be to have a public voice, she went on two long trips that took her to 44 different states and 30 colleges and universities. Did you do something quite similar in terms of really becoming highly active in getting out into those counties and talking to people? You know, even before we had our first case of COVID in Florida, and I remember, I think we had our first briefing from CDC early January 2020, within a week, we had engaged numbers of stakeholders talking about how are we going to prepare ourselves from COVID. We started having calls with the Florida Hospital Association. We started having calls with the nursing home associations. And then as the pandemic went on, this became even broader. You know, I remember even in, you know, March of 2020, we'd have regular calls with the Chamber of Commerce, became working with the Board of Governors, with the universities. So it's so many different levels we interacted with the community, which is critically important, as you mentioned, you know, also faith-based, you know, organizations as well. So our reach was really broad into focusing on many different community partners within Florida. Do you think that helped to rebut some of the disinformation, some of the conspiracy thinking that was proliferating across America in this period? You know, I think there was a change in terms of proliferation of misinformation. I think if you look really within the first year of the pandemic, you know, 2020, you know, up through, you know, January 2021, you know, I think people were more on the same page. Pretty much every state across the country, you know, at a time when we weren't sure where things can go, either had a safer at home order or had a stay at home order, you know, in terms of promoting, 
mitigation measures. I mean, you know, even in the summer of uh, 2020, we had a huge campaign, you know, one floor to one goal, talking about the importance of mitigation measures as well. Certainly in vaccines came out really aggressive in terms of having vaccine distribution. But then I think as we shifted into 2021, and this is not unique to Florida, we ended up starting seeing a rise of individuals you know, who are really questioning the importance of mitigation measures, individuals questioning the importance of uh, vaccination. So we went from a situation where there was really robust vaccine acceptance the early part of 2020. You know, think of the lines that you saw on TV, people lining up to get vaccinated to probably sometime around the March of 2021 where we really saw vaccine hesitancy grow and actually shift from vaccine hesitancy really into vaccine refusal. And what do you see as the pivotal change? What was driving the change? I think this is, well, this is a period of time where it's been, you know, well documented. This is really when you started seeing the rise of a lot of misinformation, a lot of messaging against vaccines, you know, at that time. But what do you think was driving it in your view? Yeah, I think there are a number of factors which were really complicated. I think part of some of this even goes back into 2020, you know, when we started seeing, you know, uh, stay at home, safer at home orders had a huge impact on individuals' lives. You know, kids not going to school, individuals who are out of work. You know, we started seeing pushback then against a lot of the public health measures which were put in place across the yes. country. So some of the seeds are really sown early at that point where we started seeing some divisiveness. Would you say that the, this, these were kind of hard lessons for public health professionals that in the next go round, the manner of communication and how you how one imagines or thinks through all the societal impacts of these measures is going to be done differently? You know, first of all, you know, a lot of this is predicated on science. You know, and science is something which evolves. And science doesn't always have the answers. And when you have a public going through a pandemic who wants the answers now, you know, not being able to write, you know, the clear messaging where we're saying, listen, you know, we are still continuing to sort this out. You know, please stay tuned. I think this really remains opportunities for the future. And, you know, we just finished a, here at CSIS a study of CDC. Um, Tom Inglesby and I co-chaired this effort. We had 36 other people on that effort. It was something we did in a four or five month period, accelerated period. You know, we started with this view that CDC's in trouble. It's public trust and confidence has declined, not just from one demographic sector, but from many. And it's part of a broader phenomenon in America around science and public health and public and public authorities and skepticism, but also that the performance had become very problematic and that we needed uh, some effort here. And one of the questions that we everyone circles back to is once things have become politicized and trust and confidence has deteriorated, how do you get out of that? How do you dig yourself out of that? How do you restore trust and confidence? How do you bring down the political temperature so that people don't see these as highly partisan and divisive measures? Do you have any thoughts on that? First of all, you know, in terms of the science, I mean, CDC did some remarkable things. This is a new virus. 
You know, yeah. we didn't know about the degree of asymptomatic spread. Look at the development of brand new therapeutics, brand new testing in such an incredibly short period of time. So we can't lose, you know, uh, you know, focus of the incredible things which happened early on. But in terms of communication issues, these are things that I think are opportunities, you know, for all of us. And, you know, a lot of this happened already in a setting where we're starting to see experts being discredited in general, even before the pandemic. Individuals criticizing climate change, uh, individuals criticizing, you know, educational theory. So it's in that context. So in terms of going forward, you know, public health, healthcare, it really is happens at the grassroots level. And I think the one of the ways we can really to help regain trust is really try to make sure individuals know who they can go to for trusted, you know, uh, information. Often this is their local healthcare provider. So what more things can we do? to try to help engage and empower uh, the healthcare sector. So when they're having individual conversations with the person in front of them or at their local town meetings, you know, that they will be able to be do this in an effective way. You know, one of the things that struck me when I was reading your excellent columns that you've published over the last several months in this period since you've re-entered academic life and um have that liberty, and you're watching carefully policies emanate in not just in Florida, but in other places, you become pretty vocal in a couple of ways. One is trying to put columns together that speak in plain English to a to an interested audience that may not be expert about what are the choices, what do I have, in a positive way. Another message you put forward, which I found very timely and valuable is the medical community itself has to take responsibility for being more vocal and proactive at countering uh, disinformation and mistaken policies. When you have policies being embraced at a state level or that are simply patently pushing people in the wrong direction in terms of how to protect children with vaccines and spreading disinformation about the safety and efficacy of vaccines, that the medical community has the obligation to be more vocal and not be intimidated and shying away from conflict. Say a bit more about that. Yeah, you know, first of all, as a physician, you know, we're taking care of patients. You know, we have have training in medical care. And as far as in communication, particularly in the public sector, this isn't something that we always do. Grateful that we have a number of medical societies, particularly I'm in pediatrics, that can speak to these issues. But this is something that we need to make. This this is now part of medicine, you know, overcoming misinformation, overcoming false facts, and making sure that the patient sitting in front of us really has the information that they need and making sure that they know that they can, tr- they can trust us. Do you feel like your columns are reaching people? Are you getting a good response? Yeah, I've had a, I've had a number of wonderful uh, responses and comments based upon the information, based upon some of the columns that uh, I've written and ones which will be coming out in the near future. That's great. That's great. And do you see some of your fellow professionals saying, yes, you're right, I've got to get out and be more, be more vocal? You know, so this is one of the things that we do have conversations with among medical societies trying to understand what do they need? What kind of toolkits 
will enable them to do their job more effectively. Let's talk about one of the things that you're doing at Brown now, which is the STAT program. Tell us a bit about how that operates and what you're learning in terms of the challenges and the needs and the current thinking at state and local levels. Many people may think this pandemic is over, but the reality is it's not over, and there's many, many additional threats that people are coping with. What are you observing? Tell us a bit about how you're going about this work and what you're discovering. Yeah, you know, first of all, to the point that you made, you know, in terms of COVID, you know, we are learning to live with COVID, but COVID is still there. It's very serious. I mean, this year we're going to have 100,000 individuals who will pass away from COVID-19. And projections are that COVID will probably be the third leading cause of death, you know, at least in adults in the United States several years going forward. So as far as the STAT network, which stands for State and Territorial Alliance for Testing, this was a network that was started more than two years ago when states were having difficulty getting basic supplies such as testing provided a conduit for that. But it has really evolved into this really wonderful network where individuals and departments of health, educational institutions and organizations all across the country, you know, uh, once or twice a week can have a conversation about what are the things that they're seeing, what kinds of questions do they have to ask, and how can they learn from what other states uh, are, are doing. So these calls are hour-long sessions where we'll have different states highlighting what they're doing, sharing their initiatives with other states. What's coming across to you thematically or experientially? As you listen to these every week, what's jumping out at you that's surprising you? You know, one of the things that's really amazing is the innovativeness from state to state in terms of what different states are doing. So, for example, uh, last week we had a call as part of our K through 12 network where we had different states talking about new surveillance strategies that they were putting in place to be able to detect outbreaks in the classroom uh, setting, you know, how this can actually be used by different uh, school districts. We also heard, you know, really interesting program in which one particular college was having interns working within different schools about helping with students understand vaccination, mitigation measures, other types of things where they can be uh, a really important asset. And then also, you know, as we are, as the public health emergency is coming to an end, what are the things that different departments of health across the country are doing as part of this transition? Uh, what are the things that can be done to help with the transition of COVID-19 response to the healthcare sector? So, Scott, you just published a new op-ed in The Hill speaking to the question, were states across the country really proactive and fully engaged, or, or were they more laissez-faire and pushing the responsibility somewhere else? What's your opinion? You know, first of all, you know, every state has departments of health, and right from the very beginning, you know, all across the country, there was engagement in terms of trying to control COVID-19. The federal government put more than $4 trillion into COVID response. And of course, we recognized that there was some state-to-state -state variability in terms of how states responded. But people should really realize that you know, across this country, that departments of health played a major role in responding to COVID-19. Thank you. 
Scott, this has been terrific. We, we try at the conclusion of each of these podcasts to ask our uh, guest to reflect on, you know, what gives you the greatest hope and optimism in your work looking forward. And maybe you could share that, share thoughts on that with us as we close. It was an incredible privilege to serve as Surgeon General of Florida during this pandemic. You know, of course, that we've lost a lot of individuals due to this virus, but uh, the public should be heartened by the fact that there are incredible individuals. Florida, there were 12,000 people in the Department of Health, individuals who are still working hard to be able to help control this virus. And then also, we talk about COVID and beyond. We're We're coming out of this pandemic. And a lot of the things that we have learned in terms of managing COVID are going to be very helpful in the future in terms of dealing with other outbreaks. How are we going to address other types of illnesses, problems within the community? So, again, coming out of this pandemic, recognizing uh, the incredible tragedy many individuals have suffered, you know, through what we've learned through public health, we'll be able to build on those issues. Thank you so much, Scott, for taking the time to be with us. I'm very grateful. You've been very generous this morning. Thank you very much. It's an honor to speak with you. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Marla Hiller. In the first quarter of 2023, we will be transitioning Coronavirus Crisis Update into a new format and title that will encompass and carry forward that work on the COVID-19 pandemic, along with some other related work pertaining to HIV, AIDS, and other areas of priority focus. Stay tuned for that. That work will be carried forward under the banner of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. Thank you.